And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, which is what we're studying today. We're actually going to start uh, this reading in the middle of chapter 8 to pick up the thought that carries us over into 9 uh, from where we left off last week. So hear God's word, God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 leading into 9. Beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it and bringing it to us through the centuries so that today we can sit in this place and we can ponder and reflect upon and receive the things that you have said to your church throughout the ages. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, make proper application to us in our day. Convict us and change us, transform us by your word. Help me to be, cause me to be an articulate messenger of it. And we give you thanks in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I can do anything I want as long as I'm not hurting anybody. That is the best summary I can think of, the best summary of our generation's perspective on morality and ethics. I can do whatever I want just as long as I'm not hurting anybody. We don't have Ten Commandments. We don't have the First and Second Great Commandment. We don't have the Golden Rule. We have the one giant loophole. That's what we live by. Everything's okay as long as everyone I involve in my activity is a consenting adult, and so long as nobody gets hurt, so long as nobody's rights get infringed upon. As long as my rights don't infringe upon your rights, what I do with my time, my money, my property, whatever I do with my body is up to me. That's, it's just a given. I'm in control of myself. Is, is that right? Is that how you think? Do you ever operate that way? I can do whatever I want, so long as I'm not hurting anybody. Well, there's so many weak and faulty presuppositions propping this up. It's got to be exposed. We have to pull this apart and understand how, how completely destructive this attitude is. This assumes that we can always know whether and to what extent that we're hurting other people with our actions. You see, there are ways that we can affect others that we can't know and we can't see readily. So many, so many so-called victimless crimes do in fact have victims somewhere along the way if we just think about the ripple effects of our actions. This, this idea, I can do whatever I want so long as I'm not hurting anybody, assumes that I have absolute freedoms, that I have absolute rights to use anything that comes my way and to use those things and use people and opportunities to my own benefit in whatever way pleases me. It assumes that I belong to myself, that I don't belong to others, that I don't belong to God, and that everything I've been given has been given to me 
to enjoy however I please. No boundaries. I can enjoy it by myself and have no limits to what I do with myself or with my property. I'm under no obligation. I'm under no authority. These are the assumptions built into that ethic, that statement, that lack of ethics that says I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anybody. We get to this point in saying that, we get there pretty quickly. We get there easily as a people because we are a people who love our rights. We have rights. We are entitled to our rights. We are obligated to exercise our rights and our rights keep increasing. So that once upon a time we said we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And all that means is that society is not going to get in your way in your pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, uh, the government is not going to impede your pursuit of these things. It doesn't mean that we're giving you these things. It doesn't mean that we're taking them from somebody else and handing them to you. It means that we're not, we're not going to get in the way. But now we've assumed all kinds of additional rights. Flowing out of that, we have the right to free education. We have the right to free healthcare. We have a right to fair wages, whatever that means and however I want to define fair wages. Even access to the internet is now being seen as a basic human right. Uh, understand that none of these things are rights. None of these, none of these things are, 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 are God-given in entitlements. These are all, every one of these things are undeserved blessings. These are all things that come from other people. Others have to give up something of themselves and serve us for us to have any of these things. And so if someone is giving up of themselves to give me education or health care or wages or internet or anything else, if they have to give up something in order to give me that, then I ought to be expected to give up something of myself to have these things. That's just how human society works. Education and healthcare and wages don't just drop out of the sky. They come from other people. And so to view them as a basic human right is to enslave someone else in order that they give us this thing. It's to demand someone else give me their time and abilities and resources to give me this thing. So to say that I have a right to a thing like these is to say that you are obligated to give me your time, your property, and your talents but I'm not likewise obligated to you. I don't owe you anything. This is my right. You give it to me. This all flows one way, right? This is just me word. It's not, you don't get anything uh, back unless I, I choose to. See, see how quickly this twisted liberty, this, this, this false freedom becomes the worst form of slavery and tyranny. This demand of my rights, this insistence on personal liberty at all costs, this view of total independent autonomy is not how things run in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, in the church, we have rights, we have liberty, but we only find those in submission to our king. I don't get freedom by binding other people or living however I wish, expecting everyone else to clean up the messes. I find blessing and I find my identity in knowing that I am bought with a price, that I belong to my Lord Jesus. I don't belong to myself. Everything I have is a gift from God to be used to his 
glory. So I don't have absolute unqualified rights to anything. You see, but in this is real freedom because in submitting to Jesus, I have my life ordered by my creator. So now I have freedom to give myself to you and you have freedom to give yourself to me, but I don't force you to serve me, to prop up my liberties, to, to comfort me without you receiving anything in return or to ignore the cost of your service to me if you choose to do so. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the Christians there, many of whom have made a big deal about their freedoms. They're really big on their rights. It doesn't matter what we do, they say. We're not hurting anybody. We can go to the prostitutes. Who are we hurting? That's not hurting, that's not hurting anybody. We can go hang out and eat at the pagan temples. We have all these rights. Why? Because we're not concerned with the physical world anymore. We've graduated to the spiritual world and all of this is just, just nonsense. Well, others in the church were watching this behavior and very, very troubled, very concerned uh, because they saw this activity as these guys are going out and defiling themselves and they're ruining our testimony. They're ruining the witness of the gospel in our community. And they're severely disturbed by the lifestyles of this group. Some of these, some of these people who are most troubled are new converts who had just come out of paganism. They have just left the darkness of idolatry. They've come to the light of Christ. They've come into the church and now they see respected church members going right back in and doing what looks to them like the very same thing that they left by going into the pagan temples and eating at the table of, of the idols. Uh, so, so one group wants to touch everything and the other group is afraid to touch anything and they come to Paul with their questions. They write Paul about whether is it ever proper to eat meat offered to idols. And we covered that in detail last week. This is a test case. And how Paul is going to answer this question is going to have a number of applications to other similar questions. He starts his answer back in chapter 8, and his answer goes all the way to the end of chapter 10. We're just going to take chapter 9 today. We're right in the middle of his conversation. But we need to remember what he said before, what he said last week. So what did he say? Well, he, he agrees with some of the members of the church who say that an idol is nothing. Yeah, you're right. An idol is nothing compared to Jesus. Meat is just meat. That's right. It's just meat. However, he pointed out that some of the weaker brothers, some of the new converts, uh, to them, the practice of eating in an idolatrous temple, in, in, a, in an idol's temple, is associated with all kinds of pagan practices and it's attended with all kinds of temptations and so many hindrances for Christians who are trying to get away from that life. And so Paul warns the more mature Christians, don't use your liberty. Don't use this knowledge in such a way that it could hurt someone else's faith. And then he ends with this bold statement, if I knew that meat was going to cause my brother to stumble, I would never eat it again. That's, that's simple for me. If, if I'm doing something that causes my weaker brother, the new convert, to question his faith, to even lapse back in, into his idolatry, you better believe I'm not going to do that because my brother is more important than my right to do this thing. My brother is more important than anything. I have the liberty and the freedom of conscience to do these things, but there are more important issues than my own rights and my own comfort. And that's where we pick up in chapter nine. So he moves from this, this 
a test case that they give him, this eating meat offered to idols. And he moves from the saying, you know what, this, this hypothetical situation, if, if I'm doing this and it causes brother to stumble, I'm going to stop. He moves from that to talk about some very real things that he has in fact given up. There, there are things that he's given up that are bigger than what he's asking the Corinthians to give up. So he begins with a set of rhetorical questions to remind them of his position, remind him of his apostolic credibility. He starts like this, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Would there, would there even be a church in Corinth if the Lord had not stopped me in my tracks, converted me, and transformed me from a persecutor of the church into an apostle to the church? If he had not led me to you and blessed my work there. Verse 2, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostle, apostleship in the Lord. It, it sounds like his apostleship had been called into question, had been challenged by somebody. And he turns it around and says, you're the proof of my apostleship. Uh, my work among you is proof of the authority that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to labor among you. If you want to know who I am, look around. That's who I am. And, and because of this authority, because of this rank and position that God has given me, if anyone has freedoms in Christ, I do. I've got freedoms. I've got liberty. But he continues, verse 3, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? He's asking these rhetorical questions. The answer is, of course, I can eat or drink whatever's put in front of me. Without regard to clean animals or unclean animals, I can, I can eat what's put in front of me. God has given me this liberty. God, is, God has transformed all things in Jesus. He says also, I could have taken along a wife on these journeys as the other apostles did. Peter did, the brothers of the Lord Jesus who were converted after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. The brothers, brothers of the Lord Jesus evidently had wives that they took along with them. He says, I could have done that. I, I also, I don't have to work a second job as a tanner or a, or a tent maker to support my missionary work. I could have rightly asked to be paid by the churches. See, he has a right to all these things. I can eat whatever's put in front of me. I could have brought along a wife. I have a right to demand of you that you pay me for my labor among you. He has a right to all of these things and could have insisted on them, but he defers each one of these rights. He deferred his right to be paid. He deferred his right to be married. And he was willing to defer his right to eat whatever he wanted. All of this because he's willing to do whatever's best for the church and not simply what's best for himself. You see, just because we have a right or a particular freedom doesn't mean that we're obligated to exercise that right. We have the liberty to defer it. And often the deferral is the deeper liberty. You see, I'm not enslaved to this thing. This thing is not my idol, whether it's marriage or meat or income or anything else. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not beholden. I'm not obligated to this thing. I can take it or leave it. I am only enslaved to Christ. He is my master. So Paul's refusal to be paid a wage while he was there in Corinth spoke volumes about what his motivations were and where his heart was. Remember, and we've, we've talked about this throughout our study, in Greek society, attending the right teachers 
Um, uh, going to hear the most respectable orators and philosophers was an important part of being a respectable Greek. It's just what you did. You went and you heard the philosophers, you paid to hear the best orators you could afford, and you increased in knowledge, and that knowledge was a, was a badge of honor. Uh, for, for the Jews, they had something similar. Following the best rabbis was important for them. They all had their favorites. They all followed them the way that we follow our favorite bands or our favorite actors or our favorite athletes or our favorite political pundits, these people that we, we adore and, and admire and follow. And, and most of these great orators and rabbis and philosophers, they were all really well paid. They, they had a great deal of material status to go along with their popularity. So for the Greeks, Everybody who taught them did it, in the end, they did it for the money. They did it for the status. The richest people got to go to the best lectures, and there was pride with having the best teacher, the best lecturer, the best philosopher, with the right image, the right status, the right position. There was so much tied into this that, that had to do with status and respectability. Well, Paul was none of that. Paul ran in the absolute opposite direction from this whole world. Imagine this culture with all this status, this celebrity status surrounding everyone's favorite teacher. And you're at work one day and you get asked, all right, who, who do you listen to? Who, who do you pay attention to? Who do you follow? Who, who's your teacher? And I say, well, my pastor's Paul. Paul? Who's Paul? Oh, I know. That guy with bad haircut? Who doesn't, who doesn't wear nice clothes? The guy whose job of tanning hides to make tents out of them is so stinky he has to live and work uh, uh, downwind from town? The guy whose hands are always stained and calloused? The guy who, let's be honest, is not a really entertaining speaker? We've all heard the story about the guy who fell out of the window asleep after after he was talking all night? We've, we've all heard that story. That's the guy you follow? Yeah, yeah, that Paul. You see, Paul didn't get to sit around and drink wine all day and talk about the mysteries of the universe because he had to work most of the day and he taught at night and he taught on the Lord's day. But what was embarrassing to them with regard to Paul, what was embarrassing to them should have been endearing to them. You see, the fact that Paul lived this way and rejected the status culture and rejected all the nonsense that went along with it proved that he was in it for something other than the money. He was in it for something other than the worldly respectability. He could have been paid, he ought to have been paid, but he deferred that right because he didn't want anybody there in that environment to think that he was just in it for the money. He's not just another philosopher. He's not just another orator. He's not just another rabbi. Now he shows the Corinthians just how significant this is and he, he uses some common examples. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Do you know any soldiers that have to buy their own weapons and have to buy their own body armor and buy their own you know, Jeeps and aircraft? Do you know any soldiers that have to do that? Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its own fruit? Uh, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? What's the answer to those questions? Who does that? Nobody. That's who. Nobody does that. Even common sense dictates that people have a right to make a living from their work. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, 
You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. I really love whenever we see the scriptures do this, and we need to step, uh, sit up and pay attention whenever uh, we see a place where the Bible is interpreting the Bible. And pay attention here to how Paul is reading and understanding the law. Paul takes a passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and he takes a law regarding how animals ought to be treated in an agricultural setting. And he makes application from this agricultural law, don't muzzle an ox that treads out the grain, he makes an application from there to why people should be paid what they're worth, and specifically why ministers ought to be paid. And you step back and say, Paul, can you do that? Isn't that kind of a stretch? Are you being unfair to the text? Is that a misapplication to take a law about an ox and apply it to a man? That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of, you're getting out on the skinny branches there. I'm not sure that that's, that's allowed. Can he do that? Well, yes, of course, because God's law is full of these kinds of commandments. Uh, don't yoke an ox and a donkey together when, when, you, when you plow. Don't do that. Don't put a donkey and an ox on the same plow. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't put a muzzle on an ox while he treads out the grain. Does God give his people these laws because God is deeply worried that someone somewhere might put a donkey and an ox on a plow? Is God really super concerned about that? Is that what God is, is worried about there? Um, or does God teach us through story and symbol? Does God teach us through trees and rocks and water and animals in such a way that we hear these things, these stories, these laws, these, these images, we take them and we chew on them and we reflect on them and we, we consider them. We chew on them the way that clean animals chew the cud, for example. Do we chew on them over and over and over? Do we ponder and meditate and think, what pleases God? What is he communicating to us here? You see, in the scriptures, animals are always standing in for humans. Animals teach us in various ways about ourselves. Animals were our substitutes in the old covenant, in the sacrifices. At the sacrificial altar, animals stood in for the worshiper. So Paul makes a very rational very biblical connection between God, what God says about oxen, what pleases God in general about how we treat people. This is an important question. This is something that's really, really critical. How does the Bible interpret and read the Bible? That's, that's so critical. How does the Bible read the Bible? Do Paul and other New Testament authors insist on a very flat, two-dimensional reading of the Old Covenant? Or, if you pay attention, does the Bible teach you how to interpret its own world of symbol and ritual? You see, the Bible is front-loaded with all this symbolic information, light and darkness, death and resurrection, exile and deliverance, barren women, women at wells, clean and unclean animals, plants, trees, rocks, water. It's all there, and it's all meaningful. 
It's all instructive and it's all relevant because the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. The Holy Spirit doesn't throw things in there so that you can read them and win Bible trivia night, if, if that were still a thing. He, he doesn't just throw odd details in there. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a place. And so when you get to the Gospels, after understanding and absorbing the Old Testament and chewing on it over and over, you get to the Gospels and you see, ah, I see what's going on here. The patriarchs meet women at wells. Jesus meets a woman at the well. What's happening? What's going on there? Jesus calls the faithful out of Israel and he sits them down in ranks on the green grass. Mark says it's green grass and it's beside the still waters. It's beside the sea. Why does he do that? Why does he show us this? What's going on? Well, we've seen that before. What's happening? The Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. And Jesus says, you have a sign. What's our sign? Well, you got the book of Jonah. What's Jonah about? What? The book of Jonah is about a man getting swallowed by a fish and he's in the belly of the fish for three days. Yeah, Jesus says, that's about me. Now we can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But nobody reading Jonah for the first time would have gotten the resurrection Messiah out of it. You see, but that's how Jesus reads the Bible. He reads it symbolically with imagination. What, what I like to call interpretive maximalism. Reading it for all it's worth. Getting everything out of it that you can. So we can insist on a very plain, vanilla, wooden, two-dimensional reading of the Bible. We can insist on that. I mean, good luck when you get to Revelation. Good luck with Ezekiel. Good luck with Daniel. But you can take that tact. And you can say Deuteronomy 25 says, don't muzzle the ox. So that's what it means. Don't muzzle the ox. Doesn't mean anything else. It just means don't muzzle the ox. But then you get to 1 Corinthians and you see that Moses wasn't really ever talking to oxen to begin with. He wasn't talking about ox. He was talking about people. And Paul talks us, he tells us, he calls us to think about that and ponder. In an ancient world where the ox was used to separate grain from the husk, and he, he did this by walking over it, the weight of the animal would break the grain loose. The harvested wheat would be spread out on the threshing floor, and the ox would be hitched to a wheel in the center, and he would walk around and around, sometimes dragging a board behind him that would help further break up the, the grain, break up the grain from the husk. And God's law says when you put an animal to do work doing that, don't muzzle him. If he wants to eat some of the grain as he goes, as he walks in circles, let him. Don't be cruel. Don't be miserly. Don't be stingy. That's what God's law says. And if you're prohibited from cruelty toward your animal, how much more are you prohibited from cruelty toward people? Don't, de don't deprive your workers of the good things that are due to them from their labors. And this is the principle that Paul draws from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then he applies this principle to himself. He says, I ought not to be muzzled, but rather I ought to be able to live off of my work. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. If, if other teachers have collected payment from you, shouldn't I have a greater claim to a paycheck? 
to make this point, he's called on a few examples from general life. He's referenced the law. And now he points to the temple and the priesthood. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So under the old covenant in Israel... Um, the priest lived off his portion of the animal offerings and the drink offerings and the grain offerings. When you brought your offering to the altar, the animal would be uh, consumed there. In the ascension offering, it would be completely consumed. In other offerings, though, in the sin offering, in the, uh, the peace offering, parts of the animal would be given, shared among the worshipers, part would be shared among the priests. And he would take that animal or grain or drink offering, and he would share it with his family. It was his pay. That was how he lived. And so there's precedent for the Lord's ministers to be provided for by the offerings, by, the, by what's brought to the temple. And so the Jewish members of the congregation should hear this and say, oh yes, yeah, we've always done that. This is how we've, we've always done it. The priest always lives off of what is brought to the what is brought to the altar. And so this is how things should operate in the church. So, so here's one of those great, uh, another great illustration of one of those times where you see these gentle changes from the world of the temple to the world of the church. And we see this carry over that work this way in the temple. How should it work in the church? Oh yeah, yeah, that still makes sense. It should work that way. That's how we do it. And in, in the Spirit's wisdom, you make these make these adjustments. But the point he's driving at now is that he could argue with them all day long about why he ought to have been paid for his work in Corinth, why he could have insisted on his right to be paid for his labor, and yet he's never pursued that right. Why not? Verse 15. But I've used none of these things, nor have I written these things that, I should be, uh, that it should be done to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this willingly. I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel." You can hear Paul's passion coming right through here. He would rather die than do anything that would hinder the advance of the gospel. He would rather die than do anything that would damage his credibility as a minister of the gospel. He refused payment, and yet he had to preach. In fact, he said, woe to me if I don't preach. I fear the chastisement of the Lord if I don't preach. So I preach, and it's all okay. It's my delight to do so. My work in the Lord is its own reward. My pay is to serve without pay. Giving up a paycheck for him had turned out to be an incredible blessing. Well, where is he headed with all of this? And he's driving home this point. If I'm willing up to give my rights to a paycheck, if I'm willing to give up my rights to bring a wife along with me on the road, if I'm willing to give up these things for your benefit and for the preaching of the gospel, do you think maybe you could stop eating supper over at the Neptune temple? Do you think maybe you could cut that out? Do you think maybe you could stop that? For the benefit of your brothers and for the other believers there in Corinth and the unbelievers there in Corinth, you think you can do that? You see, the question here is not about money. He's not trying to shame them into writing him a check, but he's demonstrating, I've made painful decisions and I've suffered many hardships in the preaching of the gospel and serving you as a minister. Can you not do something small for the gospel, for the, for the sake of your brothers? Verse 19, for though I am free from all men, 
I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I've lived as without the law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Think of all the cultural standards and all the, all the expectations that Paul had to skillfully navigate as he moved from one city to the next. In one town, in one city, he finds great friendship and great comfort with a little community of Jews, while there's hostility from the local idolaters and the local philosophers. So he can live among the Jews and he can submit to their dietary customs. He can submit to their social customs. It's easy for him to do. He's grown up with these things, but he's putting himself back under the law in order to win them over. But he goes on to another place. And he finds in this town, it's the synagogue who's angry with him, but he finds an eager audience in the the home of a a rich Greek woman. And there are people meeting there that, that he meets with. So he can eat at their table. He can eat what's on their table, never sinning, never compromising the gospel, but in all of these varying circumstances, committing himself to do whatever it takes to serve these people not exercising his right to maintain his own culture, not pressing his wishes or pressing his comforts on others, not confusing personal preferences with the gospel, not insisting on his own rights or freedoms. He says, well, I'm not a slave to any man. I have made myself a servant to everyone. He gave up all of these rights in order to serve the Lord Jesus. He ministered both to those under the law and those not having the law, both Jews and Gentiles. And the differences between these groups were enormous. Different clothing, different holidays, different eating habits, different conventional wisdom, what they considered good manners. How do you keep it all straight? Well, you don't say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do as long as it's not hurting anybody. If you're in Paul's position, your comfort isn't in the top 100 priorities when you go to a new place. And so here's how he wraps up this section, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should have become disqualified. This is where he turns it back to them. You've seen my example. Now to you I say, will you heed the call to give up your rights and your freedoms for the good of the gospel? But think of it as a privilege, even as you do it. Think of it as a freedom. It's its own liberty. It's similar to the kind of demanding training that an athlete goes into when he's preparing for a contest. A runner might have a right to eat a box of donuts every day before he starts his day, but but he's gonna give up that right in order to be at the top of his game. A boxer has the right to lay around and, and not train up to the day of his fight. A boxer doesn't have to work on his footwork. He doesn't have to work on his stamina. There's no law that says he has to, but if the boxer doesn't practice, then he's gonna get in the ring and he's gonna start swinging at the air. 
I've mentioned before that these Corinthians were sports nuts. They had their own version of the Olympics in Corinth, and, and it ran for centuries, the Isthmian Games. You can look it up. So Paul is speaking to them in terms that they can relate to. He says, you see what an athlete gives up to win the prize. He gets up early. He eats a restricted diet. He engages in a difficult training regimen with his eyes on the championship. And he does all this. He does all of this for a wreath that's going to wilt and die. He does this for a crown that's going to tarnish and rust. He does this for a trophy that's going to end up in a yard sale one day. But Paul says, we do this for an imperishable crown. We do this for a reward that never fades. So I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection because I don't want to preach about self-control to you and in the process, let myself go. Exercise all my liberties faithlessly and thoughtlessly and lose my reward in the process. And so to summarize this chapter as quickly as I can, Paul's message is this. I have rights and I have liberties in Jesus. I am free from the restrictions of the old covenant and I'm free from Jewish tradition. I have a right to a wife. I have a right to be paid. But my rights and my liberties are not the most important. What's important to me is not that I show everybody how free I am, but that I do what is most expedient for the advance of the gospel because I don't live for me I live for you. I am your servant. And what I do affects you. And this is true for all of us. What I do and what you do, we affect each other. What I do affects you in some ways that you don't know or understand. And what you do affects all of us. It affects all the people who not only are covenanted together, but we affect the people who, who don't yet know the Lord, who live with us and around us. So I'm not going to do anything that is a barrier to their faith or anything. I'm not going to do anything that Satan can use to create havoc and offense. Now, to live this way is risky. It's far more risky than most of us can even conceive of. It, it sounds way too much, in one sense, it sounds way too much like situational ethics, right? When, when he says, being all things to all men, we think, well, you know, you spin the message this way, you spin it that way, you suit whatever audience you're in front of. No, that's not at all what Paul is advocating. The gospel remains constant. The gospel doesn't change. It's the messenger who changes, who swallows his pride, who gives up his rights, who changes uh, his, his freedom. And, and, and it's, it's the one who, who submits his freedom to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the messenger who changes. We don't cut things out of the gospel. We cut things out of ourselves and give them up as messengers of the gospel. And this is a great freedom. This is a great liberty to be able to discipline ourselves, to restrain ourselves in order to give ourselves. It's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't go to the cross demanding his rights, though he did have rights. Jesus had the power to obliterate everything by, the, by, by just one word. He could have wiped out everything. He doesn't. He doesn't go to the cross screaming about the injustice, though it was the greatest injustice in the history of the world. He goes to the cross giving up his rights in order to save you and me and deliberately become the victim in order to give his life for us. You see, in that sense, there is no victimless sin, is there? There's always a victim. Even the most secret, hidden, personal sin, the most secret sin has a victim. It's Jesus who died for that sin. So, so we're called to imitate Christ in this way, to suppress our demand for our way, our rights, our needs, our comforts for the life of the world. But because we're a stubborn people, we're a people who you are, are used to getting our way, because we are this, we're liable to insist on our own preferences, our own comforts, our own rights, even if it means destroying relationships, even if it means creating disorder. 
We tell ourselves we're not hurting anybody, but our family, our friends, our spouses might say different. It's possible, it's very possible that, that you right now are thinking of something that, that you know you're being hard-headed about. You know you're being stubborn on this. You know that you're deliberately not giving an inch. There's really not a good reason why. You're, you're being stubborn and you're being hard-headed uh, about something. You're digging in your heels about some right uh, that's really creating havoc. It's really, it's really hurting your relationships. And what Paul says, you've got the, really the liberty to let it go. Let it go. Give it up. You've got the freedom to do so because just watch. Just watch it, at how Jesus did this and there's life on the other side. So meditate on this and, and submit to God those things that you know. You know you're prone to be hard-headed and stubborn about and pray that he would give you the liberty to give them up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We, we certainly ask you to uh, continue to marinate us in these things, to continue to make applications, to continue to make uh, the, the right conclusions out of what your word has communicated. So I ask that we would forget anything that's not helpful to that end, but we would hold fast to those things which are true and good for our lives. Father, strengthen us continually by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.